Holiday foods bring out that Proustian Madeline moment perhaps more than foods from any other time of the year. Part of the reason is we see the relatives more and spend more time in Granny's kitchen. But I think part of it also is the heightened sense of reminiscence and sentimentality from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Whatever the reason, fond memories of caramel popcorn, Chex Mix, or your favorite Christmas aromas brings back those memory hugs. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 112. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Now that we've fallen backward, it's soup and stew weather. Pick up my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, for some recipes for tasty dishes full of yum. Find the link and see reader-submitted photos of their dishes at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. Shop artisanal wines and never start the car. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash wineclub to shop the California Wine Club impressive selection of domestic and international wines. With their love it guarantee, you can't go wrong. Culinarylibertarian.com slash wine club. It's a solo episode today about holiday snacks and nosh and easy to eat things. Now, I recognize this may sound of simple food and well, mostly it is. However, I do want to make the distinction between simple food and easy food. Puff pastry straws is pretty simple, but not necessarily that easy. There is skill involved in making puff pastry. The main course items are one thing, but the spiced pecans or scallion cheddar cheese balls or puff pastry sesame straws are some of the kinds of things I have in mind. Everyone has a special menu of family items that simply must be made. For me, at Christmas time, it's my mom's rum ball cookies, which ironically have no rum. Now, in fairness to Thanksgiving, those cookies were Christmas cookies. At my house, we were rather plain in our Thanksgiving treats of pecan and pumpkin pie. Uh, there was sometimes apple pie. Christmas cookie baking started around the middle of December. Uh, for today's episode, I've broken the topics into three parts. Appetizers, sweets, and gifts. But gifts can be for you from you or for them from you. And really, the sweets and the appetizers could also be gifts. My dad loved making Christmas goodies, including fudge, spiced peanuts, candied pecans, various barks, and more. A cheese ball is the source of lots of jokes. Yes, go ahead. But if you notice, they are nearly 
always eaten. So laugh away, critics, but these things are good. There are scores of ways to make a cheese ball, and different flavors, and cheese choices, and herbs, and spices, and seeds. Ratios don't matter too much unless you have too much stuff, and then the binder cheese won't hold the shape. So, a cheese ball is less a specific recipe of this and that. There's a good ratio to work with, which is four parts cream cheese to one part flavored cheese. Uh, add fresh herbs, uh, chives, or parsley, or chervil, which will be tough this time of the year, but really tough any time of the year, but a nice flavor. Remember back to episode 37, I talked about the difference between salad and cooking herbs. Salad herbs are those you can eat whole, just as they are. Cooking herbs are harder to chew, Rosemary and lavender, the uh, the leaf part in particular. Uh, occasionally, thyme can be there, but the the cooking herbs are they're woodier, they're tougher to chew, they're much more potent, and really they need uh, fine chopping where the salad herbs can be bigger pieces. So scallion tops are also a very nice addition for color and for onion flavor. Now for herbs in the cheese ball, I prefer fresh. Now I've talked before when you're making salad dressings, I tend to go with dried herbs and spices because the salad dressing generally is made to last a long time. Uh, fresh herbs in a salad dressing will start to turn bad quickly, and the dry ones will last longer. Uh, in the cheese ball, since I expect it to be gone that day, fresh herbs are fine. And actually, the flavor is nicer. It's got that, so it's just, well, fresher. Spices, of course, will be dry. The world is your oyster, so to speak, with spices. Paprika is a good color and a good flavor, and depending on your preference for contrast or compatibility, Onion powder, garlic powder, chili powder, cayenne pepper, ground coriander, curry, and I suppose you could even use poultry seasoning. And that's just the beginning. The cream cheese is the binder, and mostly that's the neutral player. It is our canvas, as it were. On that canvas, we're going to paint flavors. That four ounces of flavor cheese can be grated cheddar or crumbled blue or grated Swiss or if you want to get a little bit into the uh, more refined Swiss family, a Gruyere, you could do Asiago uh, as a main flavor or that four ounces can be split into thirds. So let's say you wanted a a background flavor. So we want to build flavors. So we have cream cheese, which is nothing. We add some cheddar to that, but cheddar is kind of one note. Let's give it something else. So uh, some grated Parmesan, some grated Asiago. You could even sneak some Swiss in there, or some Munster, anything that you like for contrast or compatibility makes a more interesting eating experience. Cold cream cheese is pretty firm. And adding more cheese won't change that. The cheese ball needs something to help make it spreadable when it's cold and finished and on the plate, ready for people to enjoy it. 
mayonnaise is a common choice to get us to that end. However, sour cream or yogurt or creme fraiche or heavy cream, uh, possibly even buttermilk would be useful tools because they're the dairy family to make that cream cheese uh, a little bit more spreader friendly. Now, mixing the cheese ball, making it in the mixer, is simply a matter of mixing everything together in the stand mixer. It might be possible with one of those handheld uh, that it, you know, push the lever and the two beaters pop out. Frankly, I don't know. I don't. I don't have one. My wife has one, but I've never. Well, <laughs> never used it. Uh, start on slow speed. So use your paddle attachment. Slow speed. The cream cheese at room temperature goes in, and we want to just start mixing this slowly to get it to coat the side of the bowl and just be smooth. Now, we want our mise en place ready here. We want everything ready to go. So we've spent time, you spent time cutting your herbs, gathering your spices, salt and pepper. Uh, we're actually going to use a little bit of lemon juice. You could also acid help. Acid works like salt. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then we want a bowl and some plastic wrap because we want to be able to finish our steps here as we're going along. So in the bowl, we're paddling and slow speed the cream cheese just to get it all smooth and ready to go. Add the flavored cheese or cheeses and mix that to combine. It's, at this point, really this is a preference for you and how do you know what your preference is? Well. You take a look and think about, do you want big old hunks of cheddar in there? Or do you want the paddle to break them up and be a little bit smaller? I don't know the answer to that for you, but the more you mix it, the more it's going to break up. If you want bigger chunks of stuff, you mix a little less. Mix that to a stop mixing. Take your rubber spatula and just scrape down the sides of the bowl, reaching down to the little bottom there where everything seems to get lost. Um, turn it on again at low. Add the herbs and spices and paddle just to incorporate. Now, with if, if you're using lots of green things, nothing bad happens. But if you're using chives, we're going to smash the chives. We're going to lose that. Uh, we're going to lose their shape. We're going to keep their flavor. And they're actually going to sort of become more flavor because then it gets smashed and incorporated in every bite, which isn't a bad thing. Um, you could all, I just occurred to me, you could use tarragon. Tarragon would be good with the cheese, but any of those going in, just mixed to combine. So we have patches of green and not turning the whole thing green. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, Turn it off, scrape the bottom of the bowl again, and check the seasoning. Now, this is going to be definitely a salt and pepper thing, but we're going to need to do something else. For seasoning, we have a few things available to us. So, the salt and pepper are plain and obvious, but cold foods deaden the sense of taste, and more salt just makes salty taste. So, we need something else to do the flavor-enhancing job. That's acid. Lemon juice or apple cider vinegar or an herb vinegar or, well, if you're making something with cilantro, lime juice. Uh, 
anything that's a decent quality vinegar or acid would work, not that white vinegar that's used for Easter egg coloring and for cleaning the coffee maker. Don't use that. Worcestershire sauce and Tabasco sauce are the Garde Manger's best friend. The Garde Manger is the station that focuses on cold food in larger kitchens. And Worcestershire sauce is salt, but it also has a lot of other flavor-enhancing things. Uh, Tabasco, well, it has salt, probably has sugar too, but it also brings a little bit of heat. Now, you don't have to add Tabasco. I recommend the Worcestershire, and it's not going to turn the cheese brown because you're only adding a half a teaspoon, maybe. Uh, mix that together, give it a taste, and now we need to get this thing ready to shape. Uh, a small glass or a small metal mixing bowl is not required for a cheese bowl. It's handy. You could use a cereal bowl. You could use a soup bowl. If you don't if you use what you have, that's really the thing because we're going to we're going to do something here that's going to help keep it shape. Uh, wet a paper towel and wipe the inside of the bowl to make it damp. Right after that, place a rather long piece of plastic wrap on the bowl centering the plastic over the bowl. Now push, and you may have to lift the edges of the plastic up if it sticks to the side of the bowl, but you want to push the plastic into that lightly wetted bowl, and the plastic is going to be, is going to, the water is going to help hold the plastic inside. And that's really all we're using the water for is to keep the plastic in. So now with your rubber spatula and you've cleaned off the paddle from your stand mixer, Lift the cheese out of the, out of the mixing bowl and place it into your plastic lined bowl. Now you may need a second rubber spatula, rubber scraper to sort of accommodate all this. Instead of using your fingers, don't use your fingers because you're going to get cheese all over the kitchen. As you're building this mound of herb cream cheese for your cheese ball, work as hard as you can to sort of build the tower of it in the middle with as little or as few air bubbles as possible because it's just going to it's going to make a better presentation when it goes time to serve and look inside gather the ends of the plastic together sort of lifting them up over the plastic you're like making a uh well you make just like a big package from the the cheese in the in the center of the plastic and gather the corners up above the plastic you know, like you're wrapping a bowling ball and squeeze the plastic together and keep squeezing down toward the cheese ball to help form a sphere. The bowls there really just sort of help hold the shape and something to work in and also a thing to transport it in. Um, but do the best you can with forming the shape uh, of the ball with the plastic and as you make it taunt, uh, twist the bowl with the plastic and you may have to hold the plastic but you want to just sort of twist that whole thing to form a little tight twist at the top. Uh, you can pick the cheese ball up, fold that extra plastic underneath, and then put the cheese ball back in the bowl and let gravity hold that just so everything stays together and holds the shape. And you put that whole thing in the cooler overnight or at minimum of four hours, probably six, because you want it to be nice and solid when you go to the next step, which is coating it. Now, classically, the cheese ball is rolled in fine chopped pecans. I would toast them first before I chop them because that brings out the flavor 
of that pecaniness. And remember, cold deadens the sense of taste. So if we, if we can add more flavor to them by toasting them, then that's going to be a better eating experience for our guests. You could use walnuts. Same thing, I would toast them. Cashews, same thing, I would toast them. Hazelnuts, yeah, I know. Peanuts, probably not. You could use uh, black and white sesame seeds. You could use toasted panko breadcrumbs. You could even use pulverized Doritos. And something on the outside for visual and also for crunch. Place your rolling ingredients into a larger bowl than you use for your cheese ball. Uh, and you're gonna and you're gonna have leftovers, but you're going to need more than you think you need because you have to have stuff left over from rolling it around. Otherwise, you're just rolling cheese ball in the bowl, and it's not coating anything. Nothing's coating on it. Uh, remove the plastic from the cheese ball, and now you should have this firm hunk of well cheese ball. So place it into the coating and sort of just carefully roll it around. You can try to use a, a soup spoon to put. If you can reach, if there's room inside to navigate, uh, spoon some of the crumblies on top and push them in, but roll around, do the best you can to get everything nicely coated so that it's nice and uniform. Uh, place that on your serving platter. You could, I would avoid paper doilies because they're going to get wet and then they'll come off on the cheese ball. But, um, like red leaf lettuce, bib lettuce, something that's green that if you eat it with a cheese ball, it's going to be fine. Paper doilies are not fine. Uh, then you can serve it with a variety of things, crudities. You can make, no, you can make, uh, whole wheat, wheat thin style crackers. I think are really pretty good with this. You could, you know, there's, I don't know how to make triscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Not for lack of trying. Um, but wheat thin style crackers are really easy to do. And I'm going to put a link to that on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 112. Uh, but this is going to be a link heavy episode. Uh, but any kind of crackers you want, you could make naan, you could make um, pita bread. There's just many, many ways to go. All right. I've got some more to share, but first, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, it's time to hit the scales. Head over to com slash vitalchoice10, your trusted internet source of premium wild seafood from healthy, well-managed fisheries around the globe. Vital Choice sources their products from sustainable fisheries. Sustainable does not mean farmed. Vital Choice Seafood is wild caught. They offer only environmentally responsible seafood certified by the Marine Stewardship Council. Vital Choice has an impressive selection, including mahi-mahi, halibut, and wild salmon jerky. Select the salmon box and get 10 to 14 portions of salmon in recipe-ready sized portions, as well as a rotating selection of lox or sockeye salmon burgers or salmon sausage. You can also choose the wild fish box or the seafood box, which can include scallops or shrimp or calamari. Surf over to culinarylibertarian.com slash vitalchoice10 to learn how to save 10% on your first order. After your first order, each box is confirmed by you before they ship. 
This isn't a subscription. You pay as you go. You can skip a box or you can cancel. Find out why Dr. Wheel and Dr. Sears, as well as over 20,000 customers, agree that Vital Choice Seafood is excellent. Eat better wild fish with Vital Choice. Navigate over to culinarylibertarian.com slash vitalchoice10 to save 10% on your first order or click the banner on the show notes page. Now let's get back into the show. I mentioned my dad and his cure packages of yummy that he used to send. Two of those items were candied peanuts and spiced pecans. I posted the recipe for the pecans and I'll add that also to the show notes page. Candying pecans or peanuts is pretty easy and there's a lot of room for flavor additions. He used to put cayenne in the peanuts and I ate them, but I would have preferred at least less or no cayenne pepper. Uh, as to sugar work, uh, sugar work for peanuts or pecans isn't the same as making caramels and other sugar products. Now, I have struggled at for, well, ever since I've been here at about 5,000 feet with sugar work. And recently, a friend of the show shared a link which is very thorough and useful about high temperature caramelizing and cooking sugar. I will add that to the growing list of links. So, candied peanuts. The ratio for candied peanuts is pretty simple. One part water one and a half parts nuts, one and a half parts of sugar. What did I just say? That may sound confusing, since this is a recipe of measurement in volume. That part could be coffee cups, pasta pots, or measuring cups. So with our cups, it is one cup of water, one and a half cups of both sugar and peanuts. Now you could change this to Anything you wanted. It could be pecans or hazelnuts or cashews or whatever else you think would be good candied. Flavor is up to you, but for the ratios I've given, my dad used two teaspoons of coarse salt, two tablespoons of cinnamon, three quarters of a teaspoon of cayenne, <clears throat> too much, and three quarters of a teaspoon of ground cloves, just right. You can add or subtract flavors as you wish. The procedure is simple enough. Bring the sugar and water to a boil in a saute pan. That means something wide and shallow instead of narrow and deep. Boil the water and sugar until the sugar dissolves. Then add the peanuts. Lower the heat to medium, stirring frequently. What we want to have happen is we want the water to nearly evaporate. And then we have another step. So in this case, the sugar will probably turn to granules. In this case, and that's fine. There's not, there's not a problem there. In other sugar work turning to granules, well, that's going to be a problem, but that's another show. Keep an eye on the pan because we want the water mostly gone, but we don't want, we don't want caramel happening. Well, it may happen a little bit and that's fine, but we certainly don't want burn. So definitely keep an eye on the pan. When the water is nearly gone, and now this is a, what does nearly gone mean? Well, I, well, <laughs> mostly gone. You'll see a little bubbling around the edges. That's nearly gone. At that point, add the dry spices, stir them to combine, and cook until the pan is dry. 
Now it's going to happen. It's not going to stick too much, but you'll see the water's finally gone. If it's not 100% gone, not a problem. We're going to fix that in the next move. Pour the mixture onto a sheet pan. Now here I would use either a silicone silpat or um, baking paper. What I try to avoid is the sugar and metal deciding that they want to be friends, really good friends, and that the caramel won't release. The caramel can be fickle like that since there isn't any oil in this, and I don't know how much the peanuts are going to give. Something to hedge our bets for success is a wise move, so the silicone baking sheets are perfect for a case like this. Pour your mixture onto the sheet pan, spread it as flat and thin as possible. Bake it in the oven at 300 degrees for 15 minutes. Now, generally, I don't like to give times because too many things are variable. What we want to have happen here is we want the sugar coating to become very crunchy, and that happens by the water coming out of it. However, when the sugar is as hot as it's going to be in the oven, Tasting it to see if you've succeeded is not a good idea. Part of it is it's really hot and it will burn your mouth. Part of it is it hasn't turned into caramel yet by sitting at cool temperatures. So 15 minutes is probably going to work. If it doesn't work, you can put it back for a couple more minutes, but I think we'll be good. Remove the pan to a cooling rack. Add a bit more salt on top. You can either use coarse salt, like a kosher salt, or a coarse sea salt. Or if you prefer the saltiness without that extra crunch, uh, a fine, like a popcorn salt, would be fine. Once they're all cool, they can be stored in a snap-top container if they don't get eaten. Uh, the peanuts in that snap-top container may decide to stick a little bit. Not a problem. Give that container a little bit of a jostle, a little bit of a, a smack on the counter, and they should break apart very nicely. As I mentioned, the Spice Pecans is on the show notes page. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about sweets. Now, well, there's it's, it's dozens of episodes just on sweets alone, but we're not going to do that. Uh, fudge. Fudge is a big thing around the Christmas time. Homemade marshmallows is really good. And something called cinnamon salad, and and then another thing, popcorn balls, which you know everyone loves to make popcorn balls. So we want to get into those in a minute. I want to talk about buttermints, just like the kind you might see at restaurants. They're pretty easy to make. I discovered the hard way that cats like them, at least my cats. That is an issue since they do need to sit in the open air on a rack to dry out a little bit. So buttermints, one of the things that's nice about them is they have that just almost melting your mouth smooth texture inside. Now, if you like the texture but hate the mint, no problem. Add vanilla, add lemon, add almond, add something you like. Cinnamon extract might be an interesting thing, and it probably is, but oh, please be cautious. Uh, cinnamon oil and extract is potent stuff. You don't need very much of that. So buttermints. I'll add the buttermints recipe to the show notes page, but there's a few things I do want to talk about. If you go looking for buttermints online, then they're easy to find. There's at least two versions, and one uses heavy cream. The other uses sweetened condensed milk. 
I prefer the sweetened condensed version since the finished product can be shelf stable. With heavy cream, I'm not so certain I want to risk that, so that's why I use the sweetened condensed milk. And actually, the sweetened condensed milk is going to add a uh, well, it's adding sugar, but it's already sugar anyways. And it adds a really nice texture, that finished texture as it melts in your mouth. Oh, man. That's, that's the reason you do that. The recipe offers a range of quantity for powdered sugar. You may need all of it, and you may still need some more. The, the unknown here is the butter. Depending on the brand you use, you may have more or less water in that butter. And there's no way to know that. It's not a huge difference, but it can make a difference in what the, the um, hydration of the powdered sugar. It's a strange thing for me to say that precision isn't necessary here, but urgency is. So the mixing part isn't the problem. That's take your time. Precision's fine. Measure, measure your stuff. Mix it till it's done, and the recipe will will go through those details. But now when it's done, now we have, now we need to attend to this. Uh, a bench scraper or a table knife is a good tool to cut the sizes and shapes of the pieces you need. Uh, as printed, this recipe will make, well, it makes a lot. You can divide the finished dough into quarters. You could also divide the whole recipe in half. Uh, so divide this finished dough into quarters, regardless the size of dough you make. Put three of those quarters into a zip-top bag to prevent them from drying out. The other one you're going to roll out onto the counter, oh, about the thickness of a regular Sharpie marker. Uh, cut each piece about half an inch long or so, and then place them on a drying rack. If you want to, this isn't a required step, but it does add a little bit to the aesthetics. I have a little bit of powdered sugar, uh, in a working spot, just sprinkle some on the counter. It's kind of like taking gnocchis. You put the cut end into the powdered sugar and then just push down a little bit with a little bit of powdered sugar on your finger, uh, a little dimple. So what you're doing is just sort of unifying all the pieces, giving them an aesthetic appeal with that little dimple on the top. It doesn't really change the flavor, but it looks nice. Then repeat that whole process. You may need a couple of drying racks because it does make a lot. And then find a place for these things to dry, at least enough so they get a coat on them. And they will continue to dry out till they become hard. Well, don't do that. Put them in a container before that happens or just eat them. Uh, these things take color very well. And my my suggestion would be if you're going to use the colors to get the um, uh, Wilton Company and others made them, but they're the most popular for cake decorators. They make a paste as opposed to drops. You want to have something that's thick like a paste, doesn't have any water into it, and it incorporates very nicely into buttercreams or buttermint dough. Uh, what I would do is if you add two colors, divide the dough in half, put the um, Put one half of the buttermint dough in the mixing bowl and either with, um, like at the back of a, a demi-tasse espresso spoon or if you have little offset spatulas or the back of a spoon, a toothpick, something to get that out of there. It's a small container. You don't need a lot, but 
you know, mix it to the color preference you want. Mix, you can mix both of them in the same mixing bowl. Mix the light color first, and then proceed with the rolling and the and the shaping and all that stuff. Just you know, keep it keep it covered when you're not working with it, so it doesn't dry out. I'm a big fan of fudge. Now, this is going to have to be its own episode because there's a lot going on. But fudge is a cooked sugar confection. I find those microwave versions unacceptable. I can't even accommodate the trade-off of time for product. It, it just the product just isn't right. It's just not fudge. So I will, we'll talk more about that later, but if you want to make it, it's worth doing, but do the right one. Marshmallows. I love these things when they're homemade. Not a big fan of the ones in the bag, although they do make nice snack bars. I'll put a link on the show notes page for marshmallows. Popcorn balls. If you're going to make your own marshmallows, you may as well make your own popcorn balls. Homemade marshmallow takes flavor very well. So that cinnamon oil, that peppermint oil, and again, in both cases, go sparingly. They're potent. Uh, small amounts of toffee or candy cane mixed in with those popcorn balls are also yum. And you can also color them. I did mention cinnamon salad. Now, I asked a Facebook group for their memories of holiday foods playing a little bit on that uh, Proustian moment I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, one suggestion was cinnamon salad. Now, this was offered by a fellow who is a Midwesterner, and as a fellow Midwesterner, I've never heard of this. However, it looks fun, and the flavors and colors are perfect for this time of year, and as it happens, it is a jello mold dessert. Now, you could probably make it in just a pan, but since this is the holidays and we want frou-frou, and I don't even know if anybody has jello mold pans anymore, but you could, a bun pan would be, everyone has a bun pan. Bun pan, angel, well, angel food may not work because of the seams, but something nice, everyone has something nice. There is something more to this recipe. It has all of the elements of grandma's cooking. Now, what that means to me is where professional cooks would go and would f extract the flavors of cinnamon and just, and it would be difficult, not <laughs> for a whole, maybe needlessly so, but there's a different expectation. This grandma's cooking adaptation is using what she has to make this thing happen. And that has an appeal to me. That really, really does. And so that's one of the things I like about it. And I'm going to get the kids to make that this holiday season because I want to try it. Let's take a moment out to let Jake tell us about his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, 
So we've covered the sweets and we've covered some of the snack things. The gifts part is going to be the drink part, not exclusively. So fruitcakes is something that's a gift. And there is, of course, the joke, oh, there's only one fruitcake ever made. It just gets passed around all year long. Last year, I spoke with food historian Ken Abella about fruitcake, and there's a fascinating history, and done well, they really are worth eating. Now, I don't have a recipe posted. Ah, amazing, right? But it is a, maybe, in my opinion, a bit too late now to do that just because there's a sort of a curing thing and then the alcohol thing. That doesn't mean don't do it, but... I think it's a little bit late. Kahlua and eggnog, however, are perfect for Christmas gifts and even for Thanksgiving. Homemade Kahlua is worth doing. The quality and the flavor exceeds that famous popular commercial stuff by magnitudes. It's not even the same thing. But homemade Kahlua does require time. Nearly no effort is involved. It takes 15 minutes in the kitchen, but there's a steeping process in at least four weeks. Better to have six to let all of this stuff really develop. And to no surprise, there's going to be a link on the show notes page. Homemade eggnog, at least my version, is not for the kids. It could be, but where's the fun in that? So, the making of this eggnog is is pretty, now here is where precision matters. There is a procedure called the sabayon, which uh, is a technique. Sabayon is also a specific thing, but there is a technique that goes along with that, which involves whisking either eggs or egg yolks and sugar over boiling water. So you have a bowl, generally it's a metal bowl, and you're whisking over the boiling water, and you're you're cooking the eggs, and as that's happening, the sugar is dissolving, and that's changing the chemistry of the eggs, which raises the cooking temp the cooking point of the eggs, and this is an important concept for sabayon. Do sabayon uh, as a dessert, it might have, it's probably going to have the sugar, but it's also going to have either a masala or a madeira, which we're going to not use for our eggnog. But those things help raise the temperature, the cooking temperature of the eggs. And so the, the challenge here is the cooking of the eggs and the sugar over the boiling water needs to reach a particular temperature. And then we need to stop the cooking. Well, fine, Mr. Smarty Pants. How do I do that? How do I stop cooking? Well, there is an easy answer to that, and that is you add ingredients to the eggs. So the challenge lies in getting the eggs cooked properly so they have the they have one, the egg is cooked, they have the body necessary, uh, too much cooking, and the protein in the eggs will start to coagulate. And there's no going back from that. Once coagulation happens, you could strain it. It's it's been done. It's it's laborious and it's irritating. Uh, undercooked eggs and your finished product is going to taste a little eggy. So this sounds horribly intimidating, and it really isn't, and it shouldn't be. It's a little bit hot, but it's not intimidating. 
So one of the things, um, one of the cooking concepts, in addition to learning how to make a sabayon, is uh, having mise en place. Now, we've talked about this before. Get everything organized. Read the recipe and the procedure. Visualize every step of the way. And as you see what happens when you have your instrument thermometer and the eggs and the temperature is done, now what? Visualize turning around, getting the half and half, putting it in there. That lowers the temperature, stops the cooking. What else am I doing? What else am I adding? So sort of do it in your head before you do it so you know what's going on. And this is a case where seconds really do matter once that heat is in the eggs. Once you stop the cooking, now you have some, now you have some latitude. The Kahlua is easy. It's a steeping process. This is the case where quality in means quality out. So a, now I, this doesn't mean go get Van Gogh vodka, for goodness sakes. No, don't do that. But don't get Frank's backyard special vodka either. Uh, a decent bottle, and I don't even know what a decent bottle costs, but a decent bottle, you'll know what to avoid. I don't know what the brands are. You'll know what not to get. The real, the, the real thing for the Kahlua is the coffee beans. The better the bean, the better the Kahlua. Now your other flavors, this can get some orange peel. And you can really sort of customize your Kahlua your way. Uh, I did cinnamon sticks and orange. I think I did lemon to complement the orange. Um, I actually might be wrong, but it's, I haven't watched the vid. There's a video for it. But there's, there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, whole spices are better than ground spices in this case because the ground spices are going to end up clouding the Kahlua. Well, how do I know that a coffee-colored Kahlua is cloudy? It won't have the, yeah, you can't see through it, but it's got a, uh, it's just got a brilliance to it. And um, spice bits floating around is going to muck it up. It won't, it'll probably taste good, but it won't, won't look nice. And we want nice-looking Kahlua as well as good-tasting Kahlua. There are... So many ideas for treats and snacks and drinks. But what we have here between all of the possibilities in the cheese bowl, uh, the varieties of things you can do and flavors you can add to candied or caramelized peanuts, hazelnuts, cashews, um, walnuts. Yeah, <laughs> those are good. Uh, there's lots of ways to go. Uh, and, and the crackers, there's the, there's the Thanksgiving recipe page on the, uh, link on the main page, which has a few more things. Um, the key, the pumpkin cheesecake from last episode, lots of things to do, lots of things to bake, lots of flavors and fun things to do. We have plenty of time to do it all. So happy baking, happy cooking, happy sabayoni. Send me pictures of what you make. All right, folks, that's going to do it. This is a link-heavy episode, and they will be on the show notes page, colonialibertarian.com slash 112. If you make the drinks and plan to give them as gifts, or even not, uh, and not just use what you've got at home, for gifts, I got nice little bottles at Michael's. Now, any craft store should have something that's affordable and the right size for you uh, and with the stoppers that you want. 
Uh, I get as creative as you can get with whatever you can find. Share this episode around on your social media pages so your friends can make you gifts. And like the post also. And please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.